He loved them to the end. It has a poetic ring to it. And we should love to the end, don't you think? Everyone agrees that love, true love, should overcome all obstacles and never end. That, that idea is even reinforced in the literature of our culture, in which, inevitably, a couple is thrown together, <clears throat> struggle to endure each other, learn to appreciate the positive qualities in the, the other person, finally fall in love and live happily ever after, at least until the closing credits or the end of the book. Well, you know, some Christians will tartly reply that love is action. Love is not a feeling. And how you feel isn't important. What really matters is that love is sacrificially serving others. And such people will point to Jesus as the example of this higher view of love. And certainly, we see on every page of the Gospels Jesus serving others, often at great cost to himself, and finally offering himself as our as our sacrifice, and no doubt that's the pinnacle of love. But, you know, that doesn't prove that feelings of affection are unimportant, and those same gospel texts relentlessly highlight Jesus' compassion on the sick and the suffering, and they call attention to his delight in the children. So Jesus was not some stoic example of just doing the right thing without any feelings. If, if you're looking for an example of that, you're going to have to look somewhere else other than Jesus. Jesus loved his disciples at the end by dying in our place for our sins. But St. John highlights that Jesus loved them all the way to the end. So Jesus' love wasn't some last-minute lunge to the cross. Jesus' love was a constant day-by-day, hour-by-hour, constantly working for the good of his disciples. And on this day, there were certainly strong feelings that involved, but not necessarily the feelings that you would expect or desire. Now, in a society where everyone walked all day, uh, people's feet became tired and dirty, so it was customary for a host to provide a servant to wash the feet of the guests. Um, But on this occasion, there was no servant to wash their feet, so everyone lay down to dinner with tired, dirty feet. And then Jesus shocked everyone. In the middle of the meal, he got up, took the servant's robe, poured the water, and began washing the disciples' feet. Now, it must have been a jolt to see Jesus do that, to see their Lord doing servant's work, dirty work, no less. It was a terrible humiliation for Jesus and for the disciples because they're associated with him, right? They're his disciples. And furthermore, it was their feet that he was washing. And this whole thing is just an extremely awkward, very uncomfortable scene. This had to be most one, of, one of the most awkward moments of their whole lives, to see their Lord acting like a common servant No one wants to follow a leader who has no self-respect. And so Peter characteristically objected, no doubt saying what everyone else was thinking, but was too shocked or embarrassed to say. But Jesus loved his disciples enough to humiliate himself, do the work of a servant, even the dirty work of a servant. 
But dirty feet wasn't the only problem with the disciples. What they needed even more was an attitude adjustment. And even after three years of being with Jesus every day and watching him care for the poor and the needy and doing all the things that he did, they still had not grasped the heart of Jesus and the heart of his new society. What was shocking and humiliating to everyone in that room had to become gloriously normal among Jesus' followers. The world will always glory in wealth and power and despise humility and weakness. The world will always mock those who follow Jesus. The world will always think that the followers of Jesus are losers. Christians will be undeterred by the hatred and mockery of the world. Christians will become known as those who shelter the lost, care for the sick, redeem the slaves, welcome unloved children into their homes. Christians are going to be the ones who embrace a life which is diametrically opposed to the life that's held up as the good life in the culture around us. And Jesus set an example of that. Jesus loved his disciples enough to break the cultural norms and set an example of divine service. Well, perhaps if you try real hard and maybe use your imagination, you can imagine yourself following Jesus into this sort of sacrificial service. Maybe you can imagine yourself going on a mission trip to Guatemala or some such place, traveling in a bone-jarring jeep far out into the countryside to serve the poor farmers there. Maybe maybe even walking through the poop, the animal poop, cleaning out the barn, uh, and trying to do good to, to those people. But note, note that Jesus did this service even for his enemy. Right there, along with all the disciples, that lineup of people who got their feet washed, Judas was in that line. Judas, who in a few hours would hand Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. But Jesus made no distinction. Earlier, earlier he had told a parable of the kingdom in which a farmer began to see weeds growing in his crop. So his servants came to him and said, said Master, you know, there, there are weeds growing in your crop. We use good seed. What, what's going on? And the master said, an enemy has sown seeds, has sown weed seeds in my crop. And the servant said, well, should we pull them out? And he said, no, 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 don't, don't pull the weeds out. Because if you do that, you'll damage the, the crop. Um, just wait, let everything mature, and then at the harvest, we'll separate things out. And so here, Jesus was living his own parable. There was a traitor in his own midst, and Jesus didn't throw him out. Jesus realized that there would be a judgment day. There would be a, a moment in which the truth would come out, but Jesus didn't have to take that action himself right then. Here he is setting an example, of, of, uh, an example again. Jesus even washed Judas's feet. He loved his disciples even when they betrayed him. But Jesus could have kept that truth to himself, that truth about Judas. Judas was one of them. Judas had traveled with them for three years. Judas had preached and cast out demons. It would be a terrible thing for Judas to betray Jesus. It would be deadly for Jesus, but also for the group. I mean, this group that have all been together doing this, what's going to become of them? when one of them sends their master to death. It's going to be traumatic for the, for the group. The smart, 
merciful thing for Jesus to do would have been to protect his disciples from that knowledge as long as he could, to help them, to, to shelter them from knowing that there was a deadly traitor in their midst. But no, Jesus just, just blurted out, one of you will betray me. Now imagine the horror that took place around that table <laughs> as they're looking. And one, one of us is going to betray Jesus uh, it, would, it would have been awful as they look around and try to imagine what that, what that all meant. But the point here is that Jesus loved his disciples enough to share the truth with them. Now, Jesus did all this as an example for us. And if there was any doubt about that, Jesus dismissed that doubt by saying explicitly, quote, I have given you an example, end quote. <laughs> What Jesus is doing here is the pattern for how we're to live, and he says explicitly it's the pattern. Followers of Jesus will humble themselves to do humiliating tasks that no one is willing to do. Christians will endure the mockery of the world. Christians will serve the poor and the suffering, and, will, and in the process will be laughed at by our friends and neighbors. Christians will love their enemies and do good to those who hate them. Followers of Jesus will speak the truth, even when it disrupts polite society. Does that describe us? Does that describe you? Mothers are the best example, after Jesus, are the best example of doing dirty, humiliating Work. I'm talking about changing diapers and cleaning up after grubby children. Fathers labor sacrificially to provide for their families. I remember Pastor Stone telling how his father worked laying asphalt in the summers to earn money to support their family and would come home in the evening just beat up by pouring hot asphalt in the boiling sun all day. <clears throat> it's more challenging to do humble work when it offends family and friends. There was a freshman at Lehigh um, who uh, was totally disgusting at meals. He ate with his hands, always. The, that's the only thing he ate with. And he got food all over himself and his clothes and the floor and the table. And the, the whole area around him was just this pigsty of food, food particles everywhere. It was revolting, and so no one would, would eat with him except the Christians. Christian students chose to eat with him because they had compassion on him. They knew that he needed a friend, and they were willing to eat, not only to eat with him, but to suffer the shame that came along with associating with him. One sign of a healthy ministry is the presence of social misfits. And so we ask, are such people welcome in our church? Are the dregs of society welcome here? Um, the cast-offs, you know, people who aren't welcome at other churches, um, the people who aren't welcome in the library around the corner or, or in the, the, uh, the, the restaurants and what, are they welcome here? Um, or are we embarrassed to be associated with such people? A church full of clean, well-dressed, respectable people is what everyone wants. But church, such churches sometimes are not really spiritually healthy. Desperate people gravitate to places where the true love of Christ is present 
And the Holy Spirit guides those poor to places where he is most energetically at work. The essence of Jesus' example is to serve others, not yourself. You know, I would rather have my feet washed by a servant than for me to stop my meal and to wash everybody else's feet. I would rather get a good night's sleep than to spend hours comforting a scared, crying infant. I would rather have a relaxing evening at home with my family rather than to go out into the cold darkness and lead a Bible study like I've done so many times. I would rather talk with a friend than struggle in a difficult conversation with some with a troubled stranger. And how many times have I wished merely for some rest rather than a long, tiring drive through the middle of the night to a distant campus? And sometimes I, like you, give in. Sometimes I choose to do what is selfish, what I want. But that's not Jesus' example. Sin is embedded in our flesh, and sin rises up, is constantly urging us to do what we want, to do what makes us feel good, to, to gratify our own desires. <clears throat> we demand our own way. We become angry when anyone opposes us. Jesus calls us to follow his example of selfless service to other people, to helping them with the things that they want. You know, if you look around, you can find examples of other people who aspire to Jesus. Example, teachers, businessmen, pastors, mothers and fathers aren't the only ones. that You can find them everywhere. You can also see examples of lazy, selfish mothers and fathers, teachers, businessmen, pastors. The world claims to admire Jesus, but they don't really. The world glories in wealth, power, and fame. The world despises the virtues of Jesus and it exerts enormous pressure to squeeze everyone into its mold. And so Christians are caught between this lofty example of Jesus and the, the demands of the world, which are then egged on by the sin in our own flesh. Christians struggle. We don't always come out on Jesus' side. It's hard for a mother, even a Christian mother who loves her children, it's, it's hard not to grow weary of the relentless demands of motherhood and long to escape what seems like a life of drudgery. Loving all the way to the end seems almost impossible. It's hard for a father, even a Christian father who loves his wife and children, to toil year by year, decade by decade, providing for his family. Inevitably, he's going to feel trapped into a treadmill of hard labor. Loving all the way to the end can seem impossible. It's hard for children, even Christian children who love their parents, not to grow resentful or angry that they can't do what they want, but they're under the control of their parents. Every day is another long slog through the endless chores amid constant corrections. I mean, there might be occasional outbreaks of love, like on Mother's Day, for example, but loving all the way to the end seems impossible. If you're thinking that the point of this passage is to try harder to love those around you, you are miserably wrong because you can't. You can't love those around you the way Jesus did. 
The point of this passage is that endless love is impossible for us. Now, on the other hand, if you're on the brink of despair at measuring up to Jesus' example, be encouraged. Know that your feelings are working just fine. You've got the point. If you're at the brink of despair, yeah, that's where we all are. Um, we, We can't do this on our own example. Jesus is the true, authentic man. Jesus is the person that every man and woman was meant to be. But sin infects us whenever we try to live up to Jesus' example. Sin in our own lives rises up. It sabotages our resolve. Loving all the way to the end seems impossible because it is impossible. Now, here's where the gospel comes in. The gospel is that Jesus makes the impossible possible, and not only possible, but a certainty, a sure thing. The glorious good news is that Jesus has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. Jesus lived the life we were meant to live, but then he didn't just evacuate to heaven and play golf with the Father. Jesus promised to come to us, and he did, and Jesus hasn't stopped serving his disciples. And just as 2,100 years ago, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Today, Jesus lowers himself and comes to serve you, even in the most humiliating of circumstances. So no matter how embarrassed you are, no matter how awful your circumstances are, Jesus is there with you. He, he's going through that too. And, and he's experiencing that, those same feelings, those same difficulties. Jesus, just as in the first century Jesus crushed the social demands, so today Jesus crushes the the ungodly social demands in every century. Jesus walks by your side as you refuse to live by the world's expectations. Jesus is proud to be mocked. He's proud to be mocked with you. When the world laughs at you, Jesus is proud to be standing with you. And to, and to absorb that mockery himself. Just as Jesus told the uncomfortable truth to his first disciples, Jesus is here tonight to tell you the truth about yourself, about your sin, and about his love for you. The New Testament reminds us over and over that God is at work in us, reducing the influence of sin, creating in us, the compassion on the needy that we don't really have, prompting us to do good works, making us more like Jesus. The New Testament is constantly reminding us that, that, the God is, that God is active. God is doing these things through us and in us constantly, making us more like Jesus. The call of the gospel is not to work harder with more resolve to follow Jesus. You can't. You can't work harder, you can't have more resolve, and you can't follow Jesus. The call of the gospel is humbly to follow Jesus in faith, in the faith that he's working through you. Even that is impossible on our own, but we have the company of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of Almighty God who are making it possible for us to step out there and do things, imperfect things, knowing that God is at work using us, imperfect us, to accomplish these things and to begin and to, to expand and to, and to enlarge the, this life 
following in Jesus' example. Now, many of us will gather with family and friends this weekend and wish each other a happy Easter, and so we should, because Easter is our hope of the resurrection, and it would be perverse not to celebrate, especially if this is the last time you will be together. Now, you know, our family has been scattered across the world, and it was a great pleasure for Ruth and me to have everyone all together at Christmas time. It was the first time in many years, and perhaps the last time for another many years, and we had a happy time. Only a sociopath would desire to have a bad family vacation. So you would expect that Jesus would have wanted his last meal with his disciples to be a happy time, to remember the good times that they had had, the fun that they had had, the the accomplishments, the challenges they had overcome, reminiscing over the memorable moments of the last three years. Instead, it seems like everything Jesus did was calculated to make this a miserable evening. He offended the disciples by washing their feet. He disturbed them by telling them that it was, next, it was their turn next time. Then he alarmed them by announcing that one of them was a traitor, and he added to that alarm by refusing to name the guilty, and then he launched into one of his long, confusing monologues, which continues into the next several chapters of that gospel. <clears throat> no one is going to look back on this party with fond memories. You know, we read this passage because it's here in the Bible and it reveals more about Jesus. It fills in some gaps in the story. And in the following paragraphs, Jesus makes some truly wonderful promises. But this was a dreadful way to spend an evening and no one is going away happy. Why did Jesus spoil a good meal and ruin everyone's night? Well, The first verse tells us Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus was unwavering in his love, and this passage shows what it meant to love his disciples that night. Jesus' laser focus was on loving his disciples. He wouldn't let anything intrude on that goal. Everything he said and did was required in order to love his disciples. Now, of course, Jesus loves a party. Jesus loves a good time. He began his ministry with a a, a wedding feast. And the promise of the gospel is that we'll be feasting like at a wedding feast for all eternity. So, you know, Jesus, Jesus loves a party. Jesus loves a good time. But along the way, and before we get to, to eternity, there will be times of sorrow. Now, Jesus certainly doesn't delight in our sorrows. He mourns with us through our sorrows. But Jesus has no intention of lifting those sorrows either because it is through suffering that his love is revealed in its fullness and is perfected perfected in us. Well, I hope that we all have a happy Easter on Sunday, but that mustn't be our goal. Our goal must be the same as Jesus' goal, to love each other all the way to the end. And sometimes loving each other might mean humbling ourselves to the point of creating awkwardness for people in the room. Sometimes we might have to buck the culture and look foolish or even hateful, even to other Christians. Sometimes love might demand that we tell the uncomfortable truth. Uh, We might offend or even anger people. 
we might lose friends. Now, these extreme outcomes are, are uncommon. Most of the time when we get together for holidays, we do have a good time, and that's the way it should be. <clears throat> these extreme outcomes are uncommon, but we fear them because they're not unheard of. They do happen. Surely no one who loves others will try to antagonize or offend them. But love doesn't always lead to happiness in the short run. Jesus doesn't set us an example of a happy Easter. And the gospel doesn't call us to pleasant holidays. Jesus calls us to follow his example in sacrificial love. Now, we'll never succeed on our own, but with Jesus and by the grace of the Spirit, our love will grow to be more like his. And the, the hope, <clears throat> not the vain hope, but the sure hope, is that in eternity all struggle and misery will be replaced by a joyous eternal feast with Jesus. And now, before we re-enter the world to serve with Jesus in the power of the Spirit, Jesus will feed us and equip us with powerful food and drink. The Holy Spirit will bless this humble bread and wine, and as we eat and drink, Jesus fills us, empowers us to follow his example in the world. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the word of Jesus. So eat, drink, be satisfied, and love to the end. Lord, we come to you tonight ashamed, ashamed of our pride and laziness. We would never have washed our friends' feet. We recoil from offending our neighbors and colleagues. We would rather do anything than tell our friends uncomfortable truths. Help us, dear Jesus. We want to follow your example, but we are so far from it. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to serve in faith that you are with us, enabling us to do the impossible. Help us to do the things the world considers humiliating or offensive, trusting you to speak and work in us. Help us even to love our enemies with the divine love that joins action and affection. We beg these things because of your mercy. In the name of him who loved us and loves us still, even to the end, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now, to the one who loved his own to the end and loves us still and loves us into eternity, to Jesus who serves us as we serve each other, to our Lord and Savior, be all glory, honor, and praise now and forever. Amen. Amen.